0: This podcast is made possible in part by The Low Countries Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me in the studio today is Drew Lenham, and he is alumni distinguished professor of wildlife ecology at Clemson University. He's also a recent recipient of a MacArthur Fellows Program, frequently known as the MacArthur Genius Awards. And Drew has been on the show before. He is not only uh, an expert on ecology, he's a poet. And so, Drew, first of all, welcome back to the journal. Thank you for having me, Walter. It's good to be back. <laughs> you you are quite in the news these days. Here you are, a Professor of of wildlife ecology at Clemson University and you get a telephone call from New York, right?
1: Yes. Um, Chicago, uh, it, it was an email at first. Oh, okay. And that I, I sort of put off to be honest about it <laughs> because I was coming from an event at the Morris Museum in Augusta, a reading um, with some good friends and artists and uh, another, a fellow poet friend of mine, John Lane, I had dropped him off and had this email had turned my phone back on and it said we were watching this event at the morris museum and i didn't pay attention to the signature at first my first query was really you were filming this it was live streaming Is big brother (laughs) is right because i had not been told but um i went on down and there was the signature and it said would you contact us about collaborating And it was from someone in Chicago in the MacArthur Foundation. And so I I sort of told my friend, John, I said, yeah, I got this weird email, but I'll be driving. I won't have time to respond. They wanted me to call. And I told them, I said, I'm out of pocket today traveling. I'll call you tomorrow. And tomorrow came and a good portion of it escaped me because I was very busy. And another email came. And I had a gap between 2 and 2.30, between calls. And I said, well, let me return this call because these are people that maybe I'd like to collaborate with. And um, as I, I called and they, they they answered, they kept the ruse going for a while, but, but curiously asked, are you alone? And I said, yeah, I'm here in my side yard writing Thicket as I call it.
0: This sounds more big brother every minute.
1: <laughs> it was. I, I was I was suspicious. I was um and and really I was very busy. I um, a bit bothered at first because here I was in between calls and time was slipping away. I said, Well, I've got to go to campus. Is it okay if I take this call in the pickup? And they said, Well, no, we we'd rather just um, talk now. And they said, well, this really isn't a call about collaboration. It's a call of congratulations. You are a 2022 recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship. And um, there was some silence. <laughs> <laughs> and and then they, they asked if I knew what that was. And I said, I, I do. But is this a real call? Yeah. Okay. So then, tears and um, and and some babbling and uh, instruction on what was going to happen next, and so just that quickly, things changed. Was your wife there when the call? Were you doing yeah. the call? No, she wasn't. She was at work. Okay. I was actually going back to the university to pick her up. Um, she's a nursing professor, and and so I was going to pick her up, but then they told me they said, well. Um, one of the instructions that we have is that you can tell one person, um, and it was about a month out, and so I, I had to make this decision of of, of who I was going to tell, and it wasn't my wife. It was um, it was a a poet friend, the poet friend John Lane, um, who I talked to daily. Who it turns out um, kind of had a suspicion because he. When I told him about the email the day before, he said, well, let me know what happens with that. And there was just this sort of lilt in his voice.
0: I think it interesting that uh, you opted not to, to tell your wife because it has to remain a secret until publicly announced, right?
1: Yes, yes. And yeah. I, I was afraid that that as they had been watching, and I found out, Walter, that they'd been watching for years. Yes. <laughs> and it, that... Um, That somewhere there was a trigger that said "Uh, it's it's beyond one person. So, no, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wanted to make sure that um, not that there wasn't any care for her or for my family and wanting them to know it was really hard to hold on to. I did tell them, I said, you know, something significant might be coming. And um, but I can't tell you until. Th- this certain date. And my, my wife thought that it was either a, a new book deal or oddly enough that it was some sort of movie deal. Oh, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, all right. Was there some kind of big presentation dinner or did they just do a press release and how did they handle the announcement?
1: Well, appropriately, we were down at Edisto. We take our Edisto vacation now in October and it's a absolutely glorious. Okay, time back on the island or at the beach? At, on the island, okay. on the sound. We ha, we okay. rent a little house on the sound. And, and so here's the cat out of the bag. I, I told her a few hours, I told her and my son a few hours beforehand. I said, okay, this is what's happening. And uh, so the foundation gathered us all, all of the fellows on a Zoom. And so here we are, all our in our little Zoom squares, little Zoom rooms, all of us with sort of similar stories of disbelief. Mm-hmm. And and so that Zoom call, that first gathering lasted about two hours where I got to meet the other fellows and understand this amazing work that people are doing. But all along, again, just this similar story of, wait a minute, how did this happen to me? I understand what this is. I'm no genius, but the the genius of the grant as I like to say is that there's this validation of of who it is that you are no strings attached, no reports. What are the deliverables? I mean, I'm an academic at some point somebody's going to come call calling for a report or they're going to charge me overhead or Hey, Something.
0: I mean, just like your sabbatical. Okay, <laughs> Professor, what what have you to show for your year?
1: <laughs> that's it. That's it, Walter. You know, here, you know, you've got time away, but then when you get back, you've got to show what you did with that time away. But they said, you know, we want you to continue to do what you've been doing.
0: Okay. Wow. And what did you tell your dean at Clemson? <laughs> I, you know, here's the odd thing: the
1: day after I found out, I had my evaluation with my department chair, and <laughs> and, um, and 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 Dr. Petty, Todd Petty is uh, he's a new chair there, but he he has been um, very understanding of sort of my unique role. But every year when the evaluation comes up, I'm a little angst ridden because you know we fill in all the forms, and what I have to fill in just doesn't seem to fit with what. Needs to get counted, mm-hmm. and so here we are sitting on that Zoom call, that evaluation the next day, and and so I I, I felt like I had a little bit of a of a joker in my hand um, <laughs> at that point.
0: I think you had several, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but he you know he he was very understanding, and and the congratulations from my chair and from my dean and the provost, um, you know they they all came. Pretty quickly. And so it it has been, again, just sort of this whirlwind. I I feel like this was this happened back, what, October the 12th. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And sometimes it feels like yesterday and at other times it feels like it didn't happen at all. I sort of want some validation (laughs) that it did happen. (laughs) But here I am um, doing that with doing it with you. So I suppose now the world knows or at least South Carolina and the wide audience that you have knows what uh, what's happened.
0: And in talking with your chair and dean and provost, first of all, there is a sizable monetary <laughs> award. Yes. It's about $200,000 a year, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. And in the past, some fellows might say, okay, I'm basically going to take a five-year sabbatical and write poetry or I'm going to paint or whatever. Are you going to continue doing what you're doing? I want to
1: continue to teach, I, you know, especially in small groups um, to to workshop students, but also faculty, people who are interested in, in, in stretching their voice, so to speak. So I want to continue to do that. I, I want to stay engaged. I, I have no intent of, of retiring anytime soon. And I, I had planned a sabbatical. But guess what Walter I missed the deadline. <laughs> I had missed the deadline for the paperwork so I've got to figure that out but I what I really want to do is is to stay engaged but in a different way. It feels I, I tell people it's it's life changing but it's not wealth changing sort of sort of money but it it is I consider it an intellectual lottery mm-hmm. of sorts.
0: Well, certainly if you wanted to travel during your – you because know, you don't teach summer school anymore, do you?
1: No, I don't. And uh, my grad student load is way down. And um, so, yeah, there is – I've been making lists and um, have, have now the, the freedom to think about some of these places that I wondered how I would travel to, mm-hmm. that, that those places are now possible but also thinking about how those places that i travel to i can leverage into words and in, into the work that i'm already doing with some of the books that uh, that i'm writing but it uh, it all comes sort of back to being inspired to write about wildness with most of those places that i'd like that i'd like to travel to
0: all right well anything else you want to say about the award before we get into talking about drew
1: well I you know again people notice the genius award Walter and it's it's sort of a joke because you know I um people say oh um they'll they'll ask my wife did you know you were married to a genius and I almost answer for her and say well she's known <laughs> that she's not for quite a while <laughs> but um again the genius of it is and and you don't really understand I didn't at least understand what true freedom, and choice meant until someone said, do you. And I said, wait, what do you mean, do me? And they said, do you. And on this call, one of uh, the recipients was saying, uh, because his Zoom went out and he said, you know, I thought this was part of the joke. I thought that now, oh, the gig is up. And um, the, the facilitator, she said, Again, we've been watching for years, and she said, we don't make mistakes. So that's that's sort of the final word on it that uh, I feel empowered to be me,
0: and that's a critical thing. We need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know uh, I'm talking to Drew Lanham about, first of all, his being a MacArthur Fellow, but then about how he became an ornithologist, which was not exactly what. Was the plan. Let's, let's talk about you, uh, about growing up in Edgefield County. And it was your first book back in 2016 that brought you to the journal, The Home Place, Memoirs of a Colored Man's Love Affair with Nature. So let's take that as a segue to talk about your growing up in Edgefield County, for a person of color, not exactly the friendliest world. Mm-hmm. And that's that's history. Just yeah. ask your colleague, Vernon Burton. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Drew, I'd like you, you to read a passage from your book about an epiphany or discovery. But it really grabbed me. So I just thought you might want to share that with our listeners. This is from a chapter
1: that I called Little Brown Icarus. I wasn't quite a man when I put away the childish things, but I was old enough to understand that unassisted flight wasn't going to happen for me, no matter how hard I flapped or how high I jumped. Dreams of fame as a fighter pilot eventually faded, too, as my identity and desires evolved. But while many things in my mind changed, The fascination with birds and flight stuck hard and fast. Birds were a part of everyday life on the home place. There were the blue jays that stole Mamatha's pecans in the fall. There were the turkeys that gobbled in the spring and the quail that called in the summer. There were flocks of sparrows and juncos that seemed grateful for the grits Mamatha scattered in the snow. I've noticed birds for as long as I can remember. Mamatha's seed-spreading sympathy for the snowbirds in the winter was the first I ever knew of anyone feeding birds. Daddy's cornfield confrontations with crows and his practice of killing one and hanging it to scare away the other marauders worked. Crows were anything but bird-brained. Hoover understood that the big black bird's intelligence was a force to be reckoned with. It moved my respect for crows and their kindred to a different level. I saw birds through others' eyes first. Many were friends. Insect-eating robins, beautiful-singing red birds, weather-forecasting rain crows. Others were foes, crop-eating crows death-dealing owls, pecan-stealing jays. The vast majority were neutral neighbors thrushes, warblers, vireos, tanagers, sparrows, buntings, and blackbirds. I'm not sure anyone else noticed seasonal changes in their vast array. At first, the identities of the birds didn't really matter to me either. The home place names were enough— There weren't differences between chipping sparrows or song sparrows. They were all just sparrows. I never knew that there were other red birds besides cardinals. Then, one day, my matronly, gray-haired second-grade teacher, Mrs. Beasley, gave us mimeographed pictures of birds to color. The empty outline of that bird on the white page inspired me. I somehow knew the bird on the page was what Mamatha called a marking bird, a gray-and-white copycat songster that I saw and often heard on the home place and so was given permission to pursue my ornithological obsession. Inside my seven-year-old psyche, a switch was flipped on that would never be turned off. Not long after the mimeographed mockingbird's inspiration— I bought my first field guide, a golden nature guide to birds. The pocket-sized book was full of the birds I knew and many more I didn't. It gave some of the birds different names and stories that explained where they lived or even how they sounded. Soon, my grandmother's birds became my ornithology, her redbirds, bee martins, yellowhammers, snowbirds, rain crows, partridges, buzzards, and chicken hawks became northern cardinals, eastern kingbirds, yellow shafted flickers, slate colored juncos, yellow billed cuckoos, northern bobwhite, vultures, and red tailed hawks. Perhaps I could still live some of my life's desires through birds, even if I couldn't fly like them. I could watch them and imagine life on the wing. I've watched hawks trace circles in the sky, connecting one circuit to another. I imagine they start these journeys by looking up, then spiraling ever higher until at some zenith the raptor's intuition tells it to break free and soar to the next point of rising How could I know that I, too, would one day find myself searching and circling? Several times a year, I'm packed tightly into a metal-winged bird, plying the sky, zooming from one place to the next. There's relatively little fear of gravity taking over and the ground greeting me unceremoniously. I fly without a second thought, observing the landscape passing beneath me, Cross country, east to west, and back again, watching the irregular patchwork of farms and prairies meld with cities and suburbia. Much of it is sewn together by rivers. I see geometric precision with center pivot irrigation drawing circles of green in the parched land. I see amorphous patches of forest fragmented to islands where so many songbirds struggle. I cross bays and bayous. I travel from night into day and back again. I am finally flying. I wonder if there are any little brown boys earthbound beneath me looking up.
0: Wow. Thank you. Um, You're welcome. So, you discovered birds weren't just birds at a very early age. So pursuing your education, how did you end up, you know, where'd you go to college? Where'd you study? Well, Walter, I,
1: you know, I I wanted to be an ornithologist from the second grade and and Mrs. Beasley sort of opening that door and my librarian, I need to mention, um, Mrs. Wingo, appropriately named, who opened up the whole big kid side of the library to me when I was in the second grade and my friend Carl Montgomery, who was a birder along with me, I, I knew that I wanted to be an ornithologist. But as time went on, people would say, well, what's an ornithologist and and um, how are you going to make a living studying birds? And so my my love for biology and science. And, and being fairly decent at math eventually led people to say, well, you know, you can watch birds in your spare time. Why don't you become an engineer? You can become an engineer. You can make lots of money. And you can get a job anywhere. And, um, and you can be successful that way. And you can watch birds on the side. And I, I sort of followed those expectations for a long while. Uh, as a matter of fact, for three years into college, three and a half years. And where were you in college? At Clemson. At Clemson. At Clemson. I won something called a DuPont scholarship. I was one of four DuPont scholars nationally and had a choice of going anywhere in the country as long as I majored in engineering. Plus, I was guaranteed a job anywhere in the world with E.I. DuPont de Moores. So, people would know DuPont <laughs> from back in the day as the bomb plant, right? Yeah. Savannah yeah. River site. And so... Um, as a high school senior, I started interning there, making a lot of money in the early to mid '80s as an engineering intern. Imagine back then, um, I, I was getting a check every month for right around a thousand dollars. Wow, okay. that was a lot of money. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and, and so people said, "Wow, look, see, this is what engineers do. Bird watchers mm-hmm. don't do this." And and so I I, I reluctantly um uh, followed those those sort of expectations and went to school at Clemson as a mechanical engineering major and and did well enough to make it to my my junior year and so that dream of 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 being an ornithologist was waylaid by expectation really but one day on the way to class and I had asked several times I'd ask my scholarship sponsors if they would allow me to change my major because some of the standards for the scholarship had changed, had loosened up a little bit, but they wouldn't allow me to change. And I felt trapped. I felt trapped in someone else's um, desire and expectation. And on the way to class one March morning, (laughs) I just stopped in my tracks and I turned around and I went back to my dorm room and I ate a, a very large bowl of cereal and um, and proceeded to go into a depression. Really, I I did not attend any more classes that semester. I just sort of, I withdrew from from most of them, and uh, I was trying to find a way out. I I I said, well, you know, maybe if I can't uh, if I can't study birds, I'll I'll fly, and then the thoughts went back to being a fighter pilot, and I went to the recruiting station because at the time, guess what? Top Gun was out. I said, well, that's what I'll do. <laughs> I'll fly fighter jets. And they, uh, they looked at me and they said, well, you know, if you, if you actually get through the program, you're not going to fly those jets because you're too, you're too large. And, um, and I went down to the, the army from the Navy and they said, well, yeah, you know, maybe you could fly, um, attack helicopters. I was, still thinking about that uh, dream of being a, of a, a fighter pilot of some sort. And so we did had those conversations, and I was about a week away from signing. Were, I, you, were you talking with your parents at this time? I, my mother, I, I had talked with my mother, and, and, and she was, you know, she said, well, you know, all you got to do is get through, just graduate, just graduate. And I had taken this scholarship in part because my father had died in a couple of years before I'd gone to college, and I really didn't want to place any burden on her. I wanted to be able to call myself independent. I've always been um, a staunch proponent of that. And so I I went to my mailbox across campus, and I pulled the mail out of the mailbox, and I almost tossed this letter away because I didn't recognize the sender, but it was from Amick Farms. Here in Lexington County. Amick Farms. And I opened this letter, and it was a scholarship. It was a $5,000 scholarship, which at that point covered the rest of my, my tuition for the remaining two years. And the scholarship had fallen to me. The initial awardee was to have been someone from Lexington County majoring in poultry science when they didn't find that person they moved on down the line and I ended up I think somewhere being seventh or eighth and so here Walter I was saved by a bird I was saved by chickens and I, I tell people now that you know one of my mantras is that everyone has a bird story even if it's the chicken that you ate last night and and so this this letter that came along that saved me, all right. Did did you have to major in poultry science? No, no it 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 fell to this this very general you know from this from from then moving from Lexington to, Lexington, to this other CSRA county, majoring in a similar discipline. Wow! O- open <laughs> sesame! There there it is again, right? And and so that was new life. That was that was new life, and so, I I went to, and I would I would come from my engineering classes just like I would take these detours at the Savannah River site to, to go to um, the ecology lab. I would take these detours through our life science building, and it smelled of formaldehyde and, <laughs> and all the things that that life sciences building smell of. But I I knew of of the ornithologist Dr. Sid Gotro who would go on to become my, my master's advisor and talked with him. And he encouraged me and he saw something. He saw this love for birds. And, and my advisor, I was assigned to an advisor, a lake specialist, a limnologist named um, Jim Schindler. And Jim Schindler and Sid Gotrow, and later Patty Gawadi, uh, these were, and others, many others, they embraced this passion that I had had. They didn't set expectations for me other than to be, to excel at what I had this passion for. And that was, that was a, that was new country for me because no one had really paid attention before that to what my dreams were. My girlfriend who had become my wife did, but other than that, people sort of said, well, you know, black kids don't do that. They become engineers or doctors or or, or attorneys, but they don't become ornithologists. Who knows what that is? And here I was majoring in zoology and people even after that said, well, so you're going to be a zookeeper? Is that what you're going to do? <laughs> <laughs> so for a long time, it's been about identity, right? And it's been about what other people would call me or have me be other than me. And I have many, many friends who are great engineers and passionate about it. And I'm glad that they stayed in engineering because to have impassioned people doing what they love means that they do it well. With me, you were going to get an engineer who was thinking
0: about how to get out of it. Well, see, you're you're using a word that um, I used to use when young people came to me as graduate students. Do you have a passion for history? Mm. Don't just say, I've always been interested and blah, blah, blah. If you don't have a passion for it, go do something else for your own good. This thing of just plugging along because it's what's expected is uh, makes Jack a dull boy or Jane a dull girl. Uh, I mean, but sadly, I, I. I used to see more and more students, they were doing something because that's what they thought they were pre-programmed to do. We need to pause for a moment to let our listeners know. Uh, I'm talking to Drew Lanham about, first of all, his being a MacArthur Fellow, but then about how he became an ornithologist, which was not exactly what was the plan. So, Drew, you got your master's degree in zoology. zoology. Mm-hmm. And then what did you decide to do?
1: Well, I, I worked for a while. I thought that that master's degree was going to lead me to the classroom, that I was going to teach high school biology and um, be at least closer to to the birds that I loved in that way. But then I worked for a little while for the Institute of Wildlife and Environmental Toxicology at Clemson. and And that put me really close to birds because a lot of that work was looking at the impacts of pesticides yeah. on birds. But I, I had also, Walter, um, during my master's degree, I had worked one summer at the Greenville Zoo. I actually worked a summer and, um, and almost a whole year there uh, part time. And I, I tell people that that zoo work was very satisfying in a way. Because I started off as the assistant dietitian, I'd come in and there'd be this room full of dishes that I had to wash with with kind of disgusting stuff <laughs> left in them. And, and I got really good at that and then preparing the animal diets. And I would finish by noon and um, I would get to go out and do education. And so I, I felt like I had a gift for helping people understand the animals that they were seeing in that, in that collection. But part of what I also had to to do from time to time was go into the elephant house to um, to clean, and 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 so elephants um, leave um, prodigious gifts every day, <laughs> and um, you are sometimes more than ankle deep in it, and and so it was sort of a um, a metaphor for life in a way, but. <laughs> I, I knew that I was still doing something much closer to what I had in mind than others had in mind. And so people did get to say, oh, so you're a zookeeper, right? So they were sort of satisfied with that, I suppose. But after that and after the toxicology stint, and the toxicology stint really opened up for me um, this whole idea of the next question. And the the next question, as I moved from the field to a position of doing research and writing these monographs, I realized that there was much we didn't know about common birds, that we were making assumptions about these birds. And so I'd be in the stacks, you know, something I don't know if people still do, but I'd be in the stack with all of these old, moldy, ornithological treaties trying to to find out what birds ate and and sort of what the natural history was from from people back in the, in the 19th century all the way up to present and, and found many gaps in the literature. And so that led me then to, to pursue my doctorate at Clemson, but in a different department. And, and pursuing that doctorate and sort of having curiosity as the key to a career, which is really how I define academia. If, you know, for an academic, for a thinker, curiosity is job security. And, and so to to learn how to develop questions and to follow them through the research process and then to analyze that data and, and, and write it and report it became became that next step. And that was my life for a while. And then I fell into this position as an academic at Clemson. And, and that presented issues in part because here I was at the same institution where I'd started. Right, which is some not something that you're supposed to do.
0: I know, I know. You have to do twice as much because I was a local boy. That was, ah. and so the, the folks with the fancy degrees are always looking down. And then, as things as you do things well, that how can that possibly be? I once had a department chair. He said, "Oh, writing comes easy for you, producing books." And he said, this last one, my little book on, little book on the revolution, he, that's what he called it, your little book on the revolution. Harper Collins published it, but you know, that's that little book. And I said, I didn't have a sabbatical. I got up at five o'clock every morning and I wrote before I came in here to do my classes. I said, it's not easy. It's, it's work. So anyway, I'm sorry for that. That segue to being uh, a local boy in the department, it had its rewards too, but you know they always looked scamps because of where you got your degree even though they were teaching you in the department that's an important that's a
1: critical point and and one that thank you thank you for it's a it's another commonality that we have walter because it's a chip that that you don't put there that others put there and so you work that much harder um, I, you know, I've I've been in, <laughs> I've been on, I've been on selection committees where the criticism you'd have these wonderful scholars who, um, most would would be happy to have in as a, a fellow, faculty member or um, at, at some other level, and, and the criticism would come. And I've been in faculty meetings and the criticism would come in and say, oh, well, that person got all their degrees at the same place. And they'd just sort of be dismissed out of hand. And I'm sitting over in my normal corner (laughs) (laughs) and just looking, right? And, I, you know, well, you know, some of us who have have been in those circumstances have done okay. Mm -hmm. And so I I think it's one of the things um, sort of that academia is a, a unique kind of caste system. And it, it, it perpetuates, unfortunately, certain ills that those of us who are outliers have a chance to, to maybe push against. But, I, you know, I think about being an academic and I think about all those years of going into a classroom and having that chip and, and wanting to get the message about the ecology, as Marvin Gaye would say, to students in a different way. And it, it really did provide maybe a tailwind of sorts, um, maybe a, a different kind of inspiration to, to be at my best because I, I knew that there were people who, who expected me to fail, in part because I had not been away. And, and so, you know, one of the, the historical asides, uh, I don't know what you call it. You wouldn't call it an urban myth at Clemson. But when I first got there, they they said, well, you know, one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't go into Fort Hill. You don't want to go into the Calhoun Mansion, because if you go in there, you'll never leave. Well. Walter, I I, I I love history and I have a passion for it, and I, you know, I've always wanted to know about that place. And so what did I do as a freshman? I went in the Calhoun. I went in Fort Hill, right? <laughs> I tooled around in there and um, and and had questions about who John C. Calhoun was and what that meant for me. Uh, and and here I am still at Clemson. So, you know, I um, I tell people I, f- I figure that my job now and uh, and being the local, so to speak, mm-hmm. and and having. Um, maybe brought that that myth to fruition is that i figure my job as long as i'm there now i i want to see if i can somehow bend the 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 rules of reality and have have old john c calhoun flipping his grave a few times and 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 ben do it um as well but it, it is a um it is something that I carry with pride. I One of the things that I tell folks, I understand the whole idea of parochial academic and so on and so forth. But I think it matters internally what you do. And you've certainly proven that, <laughs> you know, with, with little books that all of us depend on to tell us about this place and to help us not just understand what happened in the past, but what the possibilities are for the future. So I can tell you um, <laughs> even, even to little points when I remember one day you were giving a note on, I think it was maybe picket post. It was this little place. Cause you'll talk about places. Right. Yeah. And, um, and, and I think about that and I think about um, the nature notes that come from Rudy and I think I take pride in, in folks who have gone deep into a place. And and that takes, I think, a certain mentality. So I've had the chance to travel. I've had the chance to be at other universities and to see how they operate. And, I, you know, I'd kind of like to say there's a hill of difference between this place and that place. But when it comes down to it. It really comes down to the passion of professors and and students, and 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 the people who support them to make them run. So here we are, you know, having the opportunity to make a difference. So, I you know I feel um, again that 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 the MacArthur that the fellowship said, you know what. You
0: did okay for a local boy. (laughs) (laughs) Damn good. (laughs) Now, this is a puzzle I was going to ask. Anyway, you started off as a mechanical engineer. You're a scientist. When did you learn to write like a poet? Even what was prose that I asked you to read, that was sheer poetry. Where did that come from? Well, Walter,
1: I had I, you know, of, of all the classes in high school, I absolutely loved English and literature, and I, I had several great English teachers. One of them was um, Mrs. Adela Body, and um, and and I loved the writing assignments. That was the first thing <laughs> I would do, right? So, so I give give her some credit and and those other teachers some some credit for fostering that you know I I love the anthologies I, I loved reading short stories I fell in love with Walt Whitman and leaves of grass and I don't think many of my <laughs> other my, my fellow students did um, I loved the the transcendental period I and and so that was part of it. But but reading is the basis for, of writing. And my parents, we had a house full of books. And um, th- I mean, there were the textbooks that they used that they taught out of. There were old books that were way outdated that I would read. and And there were the encyclopedias. They had this set that came with the encyclopedias that included the classics. And so reading those and uh, I particular, I had a particular fondness for Aesop's Fables, mm-hmm. but um, you know that that part of me—that's that's where a lot of it came from. But then, that time that I was the in engineering at, uh, at at Clemson, when I was an intern at the bomb plant, there was a lot of downtime, and I would write this little snippets, and and a lot of those snippets that I would write, these little things were sort of wishes for escape because I truly felt in prison. There was one summer that I was in the bowels of this building working um, with, with someone who was responsible for supplying um, different projects. There were no windows. There were no windows. It was just, and I was in this corner and I had this little yellow pad and of course a mechanical pencil. And I started sketching this pine that I used to climb. And I started writing about the land as I remembered it. And I didn't write any more than maybe three, four 400, 500 words at the most. But that was a spark because what I was doing at that point was that I was arcing what I had read in Leopold's Sand County Almanac to my life. And so I think that's where a lot of it, a lot of it was
0: born. Okay. All right. Well, you have a wonderful book of poetry called Sparrow Envy. Um, and I must say, where we live over here in Lexington County, we've got gorgeous bird life. If you want to go on a dove shoot, you'll see more doves around our place <laughs> than I ever saw down there in the last time I was hunting in the low country, which leads me to this, uh, really, an essay called Deer Worship. Mm. So if you would read that for us, please. Certainly. DEAR WORSHIP.
1: My deer stand is a tower of self-diagnosis, a tall temple of introspection where I see more clearly in the graying dark of lingering night than in desk-bound fluorescence. I climb a pine and leave responsibility behind and expectation on the ground to look out into a realm of wildness that is more mirror than any hanging on walls. There are no promises to break or contracts to breach except those bargained alone to be fully in whatever moment comes. I can clearly see the red-tailed hawk rising on unseen hope. A gray fox finds fall's fortune under a persimmon tree but I know the sweeter luck lies with me. The rut-blind buck with nose to ground and white tail wagging to the sky focuses intentions on willing does and making more of his kind. Whether I watch in envy of his freedom or lay crosshairs heart-lung high is never simple math. There's free will and ultimate choice, It is paradise, heaven, nirvana, and brigadoon with a bit of rabbit hole thrown in. All eyewitness is worthy of worship. Wild things are not burdened with guilt or sin. It is prayer and meditation and godless pleas thrown as alms and ash into the autumn wind. It is a counseling couch with no limits on listening. Sparrows offer free advice on seed-searching. My deer stand is downward-facing dog and genuflection, a supplicating place where time is the rare commodity sought and patience the only cost. I watch sun and moon rise, circle, and rest without rewinds or resets. In my tree... Commandments don't come in ten, but one,
0: just be. I read that, and uh, then I told you before we went on the air that that reminded me of the fall of 1996. Uh, my friend Clint Belser has a wonderful place up in Fairfield County, and uh, every Saturday uh, during deer season, uh, we'd go up there and uh, get into deer deer stands. It was not a good hunting season, <laughs> but that didn't bother me. Um, being about twelve feet off the ground, obviously I was looking for the deer. But I didn't. A lot of guys would read. I don't. I didn't do that. I thought I was writing in the process of writing the South Carolina history. And what am what am I going to do next week? What am I, how am I going to deal with a particular problem? And so, for the couple of hours that I was in the stand, if I didn't hear anything, I just went—it th- went through my mind about what I was going to do. And so, when I, on Sunday night, when I would start writing for the next week, I had already spent time cogitating, as my <laughs> grandfather would have said. Um, but to be there in that. Beautiful fall, and it was an incredibly beautiful fall. The leaves did exactly the, what they were supposed to; they didn't just dry and drop off. You know, and I, I I told Clinch, and you know, I really ought to thank your dear stand in my acknowledgements because the thought processes that I went through while I was up there were instrumental in how the book finally came out.
1: That's I, I already have a lot of respect for your work, but now that that book becomes even more special to me because that's. The understanding, I wrote that poem um, because of that experience that, that you had, but I I have it thinking about, I think a lot about poetry. I think about a lot of things, but then it's also one of the few spaces where I think about nothing and it clears my mind to be able to come back to a creative space and and to write in, in ways that... I don't, I will tell you that I did not, um, I didn't hunt during the pandemic. And last year, um, as we were, I guess, coming out of it, I, I got on the stand a couple of times and haven't been on as much this year as I would like to, but I, I get the chance occasionally, um, friends will, will invite me to, to hunt. And, and it's just a, the, the deer become are important. I love venison, but, um, so much more happens up there than folks will ever know. And I, I I tell people that if you've never had the opportunity to just sit up there, you don't have to take a gun or a bow or, but just sit up there and, and, and take on that different perspective and they'd be surprised. And so I, I do, I, it it gives me a very different appreciation for for your work, knowing that that happened.
0: True. I hate to say this, but Alfred's been uh, whispering in my ear. It's time for us to wind up. So any last words you'd like to have for our listeners before we do sign off?
1: Walter, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be here and, um, And I'm grateful to you for all that you give to voice and to stories and to this state and to the depth of who it is that we are and
0: the possibilities of who it is that we can be. So thank you for having me here today. Listen, it was wonderful having you back. And I am so proud that the outside world is recognizing another local, (laughs) (laughs) the local graduate on the faculty. (laughs) How about that? That works. All right. Drew, thank you so much, and uh, safe travels. Thank you, Walter. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was a real pleasure to have Drew Lenham back on the show. This young man from Edgefield County has really made a name for himself as a great teacher at Clemson, a poet, and the stories he tells about growing up, about his experiences just in life are a remarkable South Carolina story. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.